Today, I wanted to welcome Chad Braun of Fifth Corner Real Estate Group in Houston, Texas to the podcast. Chad is a current managing partner at Fifth Corner. Previous to his time at Fifth Corner, he served as the CFO and COO of Amrit Inc., where he was responsible for all aspects of capital formation, accounting, reporting, asset management, investor relations, and human resources. In 2014, that was sold to Eden's. And now Chad has embarked with this group in Fifth Corner on their new venture. Uh, Chad, welcome to the podcast. It sounds like capital formation, accounting, reporting, so on and so forth, makes you the Swiss Army knife of real estate investing. Kevin, thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, yeah, Swiss Army knife or a one-armed paper hanger, uh, whatever <laughs> whatever works. But the, the job description has been vast over the time. Yeah, well, thanks for being here. Uh, I think as most listeners know, we enjoy bringing partners, uh, especially GPs that we tend to invest with on the podcast, really your name itself is intriguing enough for people to stop and say, wait, there's only four corners on the block. How is there a fifth corner? So please tell us how you came into fifth corner. But if you would just go back and start with your career, how did you end up where you are today? And then tell us about the firm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Love to. It is uh, one, I guess I'm you know native Houstonian. So born and raised here in Houston. My dad had a, a concrete construction company. So I, I got in uh, an interest in the real estate business at a, at a young age, sitting around the, you know, the dinner table at night. Uh, went off to school, got my accounting and finance degree uh, at Hardin-Simmons University and played football up there. Uh, and then went into public accounting, uh, was with uh, Kenneth Leventhal and company doing real estate consulting, uh, really on the back end of the RTC or the Resolution Trust Corporation with all the failed SNLs. And uh, learned very quickly uh, how real estate can go wrong from a capitalization perspective and, and what happens to that. So it was a, it was a great lesson. Uh, I guess about five or six years into that, while I loved the work I was doing, I hated where I was doing it, which was all over the country and, and traveling a lot. Uh, had a new wife and, and a young family at that point in time and, and decided I didn't want to live out of suitcases and, and out of hotel rooms and started looking around and uh, got introduced to a gentleman by the name of Carr Taylor. Uh, and Carr had founded a small real estate firm at the time. We were probably 50 million in assets uh, known as Amrit. Uh, that was in April of 99. Uh, had just a wonderful journey there. We really transitioned and transformed the company uh, another gentleman by the name of Tanel Tayar joined us in 2003, and then along with you know the team at Amory, we grew that company from 50 million in assets to to 1.5 billion. Took it public on the New York Stock Exchange, uh, and then Kevin, as you indicated, uh, we sold uh, that company in a go private transaction to Edens. Uh, one under contract October 31st of 2014, and then ultimately closed the transaction in February of 2015. Uh, Tanel and I stayed on board and kind of transitioned uh, our employees and a couple of institutional joint ventures that we had. And then we left in October of 2016. And in 2017, we we started or founded Fifth Corner. And at Amory, we had trademarked the name Irreplaceable Corners because that really was, it just created a picture of the type of real estate that we invested in. When we sold the company, that wasn't Eden's brand. Uh, it wasn't their IP. They didn't want it. And so we were able to to retain that at Fifth Corner. And, and then, Kevin, to your point, how did we come up with the name? Uh, one, the, the whole naming your company process is so interesting, everything that goes into it. Really? Uh, but but to us, we, we really started the company on what I'll call kind of two pillars. And, and each of those pillars has five points to it. 
And so we call it the soft side and the hard side of our business. And, and on the soft side of our business, uh, we say that's the five C's. And so it starts with core values. And, and candidly, we take the motto of the United States, in God we trust, uh, that your core values have to come from somewhere. And, and we say mm-hmm. our, ours are God-given. Uh, those core values really manifest themselves then starting in in the second C, which is character. And, and for us, character is good old-fashioned values. It's what do you do when nobody's watching, letting your word be your bond and being a man or woman of, of integrity and, and letting that guide you. And then behind character, uh, we say is competence. Uh, you know, competence is about using the gifts and the talents to the best of our ability that, that we've been given, uh, becoming experts in whatever you know field or, or discipline of, of real estate that you're hired in to be and and having a mindset that continual learning is actually how you advance that there's always something that we can take from a situation and apply it to future situations and then fourth is communication communicating in good times and in bad times whether that's with our partners with our bankers internally you know with our our team, uh, making sure that we have a, a high degree of transparency in our communication. And then lastly uh, is community. Our goal, our mission statement is to create value on community-focused irreplaceable corners. And so we look at at the first stage of our community being our family, second stage of community being our, our employees and work environment. And then outside of the office, it's it's with our investors, our bankers, it's with the communities in which we invest. And our goal across the board is is to leave the community better than you found it. And if that's the mantra, then you do things a little differently. Work-life balance means a different thing. Who the tenants are at your shopping center means a different thing. Aesthetically, how the shopping center looks and, and how it invites the community, all, all of those decisions kind of flow through the five C's. And then on the, the hard side of our business, our, our investment strategy, we call the five D's. And, and that starts with demographic affluence. And we're targeting 100,000 average household income in a one-mile radius of where we invest. And then we look at density of that population, and we want there to be 100,000 people within a three-mile radius of where we invest. So on the affluence, it's the it's the center of the bullseye. It's one mile. We want to be in the heart of it. Density, we we kind of zoom out a little bit, and we're really looking at a at a trade area to make sure there's there's enough there there. And then we we look at the third D called demand generators, and that's really a daytime population. Uh, it's looking to to locate in close proximity to central business districts or office submarkets, university systems, hospital systems, mm-hmm. something that's going to bring a daytime population in that doesn't necessarily sleep there at night. And then our fourth D is desirability, and that's really the blocking and tackling of, of real estate. It's looking at ingress and egress, zoning, entitlements, utility capacity, all of those things that could be stumbling blocks or impediments to creating value and making sure that, that we identify and outline that early on. And then then lastly is is demarcation. And, and demarcation is, is about physical barriers, but it also may be psychographic barriers. It's being that local sharpshooter and understanding how is the northwest corner at the intersection different than the southeast corner at the intersection? Uh, and, and that local knowledge is is critical in in real estate. And and so those five Ds have have acted as a competitive moat around our properties. And whether you go back to the pandemic, the global financial crisis, the the dot com era for the last almost thirty years, what we found is our portfolio, our properties, simply perform 
better than than our kind of competing properties in the area. And so when you take the five C's of of the soft side and the five D's of the the hard side, where those intersect is what we call the the fifth corner. So very simple question, very long winded answer. Well, no, I think it's a great answer, and it shows you know your dedication, your space, your ability to think out what your niche market is and execute and develop in that market. In fact, I was driving to lunch today with my chief investment officer, Adam Packer. We passed a building on BK Road here. It's a fantastic building. I mean, it's that kind of, I call it like the mini Silicon Labs headquarters. It's that limestone with the steel and glass, beautiful building, but but it's basically empty because it's a very difficult building to access. Um, it's, It's hard to get out in and out of the building. And it's always been you know, an albatross around the neck of that particular building. And so you you get into a tight market like this and you can see, you know, tenants leave and no one return into those type of spaces. And again, you know, in your area, in one of those affluent circles, uh, but you just can't fill the building. It's it's a thing to watch. Um, Well, and I think, you know, one of the things that we found is tenants are going to come and go. There's going to be an evolutionary cycle of tenants. And, and if your location is right, then you're always at the right place of that evolutionary cycle. If, if you have the wrong location, then you you really run the risk that as that tenant cycle moves, are you going to be able to, to backfill that space with the right tenant? Uh, and so it's, you know, as you go through our five Ds, I mean, we definitely have a retail focus, uh, an urban infill retail focus, but there's nothing about those five D's that say retail. And there's nothing about those five D's that say the type of tenant that we go after, because first and foremost in our investment strategy, it's about getting the location right. And if you get the location right, then you can attract the right tenants and you can attract the highest and best use for that for that piece of property. And I think, you know, to your point, maybe just to piggyback on that, having spent so much time in the commercial real estate world, we're in a really unique position. I was having a phone call this morning with, with some of the families and they were telling me the prices that they bought buildings for in, in RTC. It didn't seem real. Uh, I asked, you, they literally gave, basically gave you the building. Yeah. yeah. You carry the negative cost of the building until you fix it. It was yours. And, right. You know, my question for you is, do you see that coming our way? Do you see another, you know, late 80s, you know, commercial real estate collapse? Um, I don't want to call it collapse. So that's pretty much what it was. And then how do you view negative leverage right now? You know, will this cycle be the same as prior cycles and, and specifically going back to, you know, late 80s, early 90s with the RTC? It's funny you said you were having that conversation this morning. I too was having that conversation at a at a luncheon that I was at, mm-hmm. and the the consensus was was no, uh, you know we're not going to see that, and we're not going to see it for a variety of reasons. Number one, there is so much capital and liquidity uh, still in the market today, which is a very different fact pattern than it was during the the RTC or the SNL you know crisis, where I think your word choice was fantastic, which it was a collapse. The the other thing that you've got with that, what's the government's role in this, um, right? And, and we saw in the in the late 80s and early 90s with the RTC, they created the Resolution Trust Corporation to come in and clean it up. Uh, and, and it was private investors, maybe like some of the families that you were talking to, Kevin, this morning that really reaped the benefit of that. What we saw in the in the global financial crisis, right, was probably a similar crisis, but a different way to attack it. And, in, and as opposed to creating an organization that would profit or benefit, you know, uh, Main Street, the government kept that, kicked the can down the road, helped the big banks. We've all heard, you know, the whole notion, you know, too big to fail. 
and, and that was the benefit there. So I think a combination of kind of the, the government's role and the government's influence with the banking environment, coupled with the liquidity uh, that we still see in the market, we're just not going to see anywhere near that level of, of devastation. Uh, I think there will certainly be some buying opportunities, uh, and, and we're actively looking and, and staying disciplined as we pursue that. Uh, but I don't, I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the bloodbath, if you will, that that we saw coming through the the SNL crisis. Uh, and part of that, and, and it goes to to your notion then on kind of the next question of of the banking environment and in negative leverage and and kind of what are we seeing on the on the debt side of the equation. Thankfully, I can share with you that we do not have a single piece of debt on the balance sheet that is negative leverage at, at this point. And by that, I mean, right, the, the cash flow that the properties are generating uh, will more than support the monthly debt service payment that that mortgage requires. We've seen banks continue to, to be active. I think they're more selective today than, you know, than they were 12 and 15 months ago. Uh, but nonetheless, they're active. What what we've seen is that if you have very well high location, you know, qualities of the real estate, you've got good sponsorship, uh, and then thirdly, that the structure of the debt, lower loan to to value, you know, in the 50, 55, 60 percent range versus 65, 70, 75 percent range, uh, you know, that lenders are still active there. I think yeah. it's it's very hard to get in a negative leverage situation because you're you're making a hard, hard bet on the future that you're going to be able to grow your way out of that, that you're going to be able to grow cash flow. I mean, I, I heard of deals, you know, four and five months ago uh, that were negative leverage deals going in and sponsors had to grow cash flow at like 30 percent a year in order to grow out of that. Well, even if you get 10 or 15 percent cash flow growth, which historically is is exceptional, you're still going to be underwater. So our mantra has been we we won't do negative leverage deals. Uh, we want the deal to be cash flowing day one. We want to be positive leverage. Now, as interest rates have gone up, that spread between the going in cap rate or, or going in cash flow and where our, our debt is has certainly narrowed, but has, has remained positive. Chad, thanks for giving us that background on loan to value and how you guys really focused early on. Like you said, you were the cool kids before it was cool. In the uh, in the space for loan to value or, or loan to cost on on anything that would be on a construction side, um, but with that said, tenant leasing market is something you and I have talked about previously as well. Help us get a better grasp on you know how are companies really looking at real estate now post pandemic as they were before the pandemic. Yeah, I think um, you know there's there's a lot that goes into to leasing and occupancy and tenant demand and and I think in in our markets right now um, you know part of the dynamic is is supply and so one of the things that we have seen is historically going back if you look plus or minus uh, Houston as an example you know generates or constructs a little over four million square feet of shopping center space or retail on an annual basis and last year and what's on track this year we're probably half of that we're about 2.1 2.2 million square feet so there's much less new construction hitting the market uh, and then the other dynamic that you've had also impacting supply is that single story retail is being torn down in the urban core to make way for a more dense use, either, you know, high rise, multifamily, office buildings, hotel properties. And, and so you've got this shrinking supply of, of retail 
And then on the flip of that, from the demand side, what we're seeing uh, is a lot of tenant demand. You've got new tenants entering the market, new restaurant tenants from the East Coast and the West Coast that recognize the diversity and the, the foodie nature of, of markets like Houston and Austin and, and Dallas and San Antonio. Uh, and then you've also got incredible segmentation within the service sector, um, you know, where you used to go one place and be able to, you know, get your hair done and your nails done or your eyebrows, you know, waxed or, or whatever. And now, those are all individual services with individual tenants. Uh, so the service segment has gotten so much more segmented than it used to be. And that combination of less supply and more demand has been very attractive for, for landlords. You know, since inception uh, at Fifth Corner back in, you know, mid-2017, uh, we have seen positive leasing spreads across our portfolio that are just over 17%, 17.3%. And, and by leasing spreads, I mean, you know, when a tenant comes up for lease expiration, either the replacement tenant or during an extension period, are you able to grow the rent, keep the rent the same, or do you have to walk the rent backwards? And in our fact pattern, we've been able to grow the rent about 17.3%. In the last four or five months so far in 2023, that metric is actually north of 20%. It's almost 22%. Uh, you couple that with our occupancy uh, our occupancy is about 97.5% right now. Wow. If you look at, at kind of the just the broad market occupancy, or you look maybe to some of the, the publicly traded uh, shopping center REIT peers, that average is closer to about 95 to 95.5%. So we're, we're beating the average on occupancy, and we're beating the average on, on our leasing spreads. And then the third metric that we look at uh, Kevin is is what we call you know same store or same property NOI growth. Are yeah. we able to grow the net operating income year over year? Because that's what drives cash flow for distributions to investors, and that's ultimately the metric that you apply a cap rate on to determine what it's what it's worth. So growing the NOI is is very meaningful in in our space, and we've been able to get same store NOI growth of about nine point two percent. Uh, again, to put that in perspective, uh, the public company peers are running at about two and a half to three and a half percent. So we're we're significantly outpacing uh, some of the other investment options that are available. That's amazing. Well, I, w one of the reasons that I can attest to is having come to Houston and toured some of these properties and locations with you. And I think for real estate investors, that's one of the unique advantages is that they can go touch a tangible property. They can go feel it. They can experience it. They can go eat at the restaurants. They can go work out at the gyms that are in them. If you could, to share with our audience, where are some of these in Houston if they were in town or, or they live in Houston and want to drive by and experience some of the properties? You know, Let us know what would be those properties they should stop by and see first. Yeah. So I think we've... Uh... Yeah, you know, so we've got three properties um, in the Greater Heights area. Uh, we have got uh, Ella Oaks uh, that is at uh, Ella Boulevard and 34th, and then just about a mile, mile and a half down the road on 34th at North Shepherd and 34th. We've got another project there, Garden Oaks. Uh, we've got two properties along the Washington Corridor uh, inside the uh, the Loop and the Rice Military uh, submarket. Uh, we've got three properties in Midtown. Uh, Midtown sits in Houston directly, you know, in between the Central Business District and the Texas Medical Center. Yeah. Just an incredibly uh, robust submarket. Uh, we've got three properties there. Uh, then we've got um, three properties in the West 7th District of Fort Worth. 
uh, and a property on the on the San Antonio Riverwalk. Uh, what I think is fun is if you look across the, the portfolio of properties we have, um, and we'll use Garden Oaks uh, as an example, um, you know, we've got uh, all of the tenants there and we bought that property in 20, either late 2018 or early 2019, I don't recall, but but within that couple month time frame, we've been able to influence every single one of the leases at that property. Uh, and our average leasing spread at that property has been north of 20%. Uh, and so you look at at a, at a project like, or excuse me, a project like that, but a tenant such as Upside Pub, which is a a great little you know neighborhood bar restaurant. You can show up there on a Saturday, and you'll see you know a couple of folks over in the corner playing you know chess. Uh, you'll see somebody sitting at the bar getting a you know getting a cold beer. Um, it's that cheers environment, if you will. Um, you know, next to that, you've got Pink's Pizza, which is a just an institution here in Houston. It's it's been there for well over you know a decade, uh, probably decades. Um, they've thrived during COVID. Um, we were able to you know renew that lease and increase the rent during COVID. Um, you know, next to that, we've got a, a liquor store. It's actually a boutique bourbon uh, liquor store. Uh, oh, their wow. sales went from. 900,000 pre-COVID to 1.8 million post-COVID, <laughs> uh, and their rent reflects that type of, of growth. Uh, and then we've got a veterinary clinic and, and some others, but it just, that gives you a, a flavor for the tenancy and the opportunity. And so if you look across our portfolio, all but about two or three tenants, the lease size is under 10,000 square feet. Hmm. Uh, and if you look across the, the tenants, uh, we fit very squarely into the experiential, the essential, and service-oriented tenants. We really don't have any big box users. We don't have anything that really uh, has to compete with with Amazon or e-commerce. We're very e-commerce resilient. And that coupled with the size of space, we believe we're really at an advantage to to drive rental income and NOI growth uh, because those those smaller tenants, the the rental rate per foot is significantly higher than it is on the bigger boxes. The ability to grow that rent through positive leasing spreads is better. The lease duration is a little bit shorter than it is on the bigger box space. And the smaller tenants don't typically have any what I would call entanglement clauses where they don't have co-tenancy rights or no build rights or any of those things. So from a landlord, from an investor perspective, we really kind of control all the cards to creating that that value. And, and what we've seen is the value creation uh, is much stronger in those type of assets than say a large power center asset that's that's got you know some of the household names, but you really don't have a way to to grow the the net operating income over say a five to seven year time horizon. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I know we've taken up a lot of your time today, Chad. I thank you for hopping on and uh, and hanging out with us today. If there was one question that I did not ask you today about Fifth Corner, what is upcoming in the future for you and your team? What should that question have been? You know, a lot of a lot of times we'll have people ask us uh, about property taxes, ad valorems, and, and how we're dealing with that, knowing and recognizing that um, you know there's a lot of, of cities and municipalities out there that that are struggling to make their budget. You see it on the commercial side, but my guess is, you know, Kevin, you have and, and your listeners have built this burden of, of property taxes, even just with our, our own, you know, homestead and, and just the incredibly uh, increasing or escalating values. You know, that's something that we fight very hard. It's a big component 
uh, of operating costs and the expenses that, that a tenant pays. So in a retail lease, a retail lease is, is, a, is a tri- what we call a triple net lease. So they're going to pay their base rent. They're going to pay their share of property taxes, of insurance, and then common area maintenance. But a tenant really doesn't care on the rent that they're paying what it goes to. They just care how much do I have to pay every month. And so if, if property taxes continue to go up because the, the assessed values are going up, then that has the potential to create this, this glass ceiling on, on what we can charge in rent. And so we are, uh, we are very aggressive uh, on that in fighting those property taxes, keeping them as low as we can to keep those operating costs low so that our investors really uh, are able to benefit from a growing rent structure. But, but that's one of those things that, uh, you know, is kind of, that'll keep you up at night uh, in, in how you fight those municipalities and, and ensuring that we're able to, to drive value to, to the investor and cash flow that actually drops to the bottom line for the investor's benefit. Makes a lot of sense. And yeah, the season for fighting your property taxes is always a fun one. So yes, it is. Everyone comes out with their swords raised, it seems, during that time of year. So, well, Chad, thanks again. We appreciate you and, and your team and all of the work that you're doing at Fifth Corner. Thank you so much for being a, a wonderful partner and a friend. And thanks for being on the podcast. Absolutely, Kevin. Thank you. It, it's been a pleasure. And uh, I think you guys do a great job and just happy to participate. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.